Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is the first day of April 2021. I am John Pothorst, the editor of Commentary Magazine, where, as I told you yesterday, you can go to merch.commentarymagazine.com and get yourself a beautiful new Keep the Candle Burning coffee mug. Gorgeous, along with that Keep the Candle Burning shirt and the Crushing Morosity shirt and sweatshirt and the Commentary Magazine tea and the Commentary Magazine tote bag. Yes, merch at commentarymagazine.com, merch.commentarymagazine.com for the Keep the Candle Burning mug. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And this is the last day of Nora Rothman's vacation, and uh, joining us today is commentary contributor uh, Wilfred Riley, uh, who's uh, the author of this month's cover story, uh, What uh, the Good News They Won't Tell You About Race in America. Will is a professor, uh, a bon vivant, a, uh, the author of Hate Crime Hoaxes and... Uh, I'm sorry. I'm. I'm. I, I've taboo, gone up taboo. on your taboo. Excuse me. Right. These two uh, excellent books, um, uh, and uh, I think this is his uh, third or fourth cover story for us in the last uh, couple of years. So, welcome, Will. Thank you for joining us. Hi, John. Um, so let's talk about the good news. They won't tell you about race in America uh, because. Um, you wouldn't know, particularly given this week with the trial of uh, George uh, of uh, Derek Chauvin for the killing of George Floyd underway in in Minneapolis, that there is any good news about race in America, given the tone, spirit, and coverage of these issues uh, in the mainstream media and the general c- conversation around them in in popular culture. Yeah. So what I wanted to do with this piece is provide kind of a nuanced overall take on the race picture in the USA, which is not something you often get in that kind of short form mainstream media discourse that I've described as black guy and Republican guy yelling at each other before. So, I mean, I opened the piece by noting that there there obviously is racism in the USA. I mean, I'm a political scientist. I practice in that field. So I mentioned some of the studies. Uh, we find residual housing discrimination of about 7 to 8% against African-Americans. Uh, about the same percentage of people, 8 to 9%, say they wouldn't vote for a highly qualified same-party candidate who happened to be black. Um, we mentioned some of the audit studies. Uh, now, th- this, all, this, this to me is primarily a class effect. But if you have what's considered a black name, say Daquan, and you apply for a job as as versus someone named Connor, John, something like that, you're you're a bit less likely to be hired. It varies from roughly zero percent up to about thirty. Uh, that doesn't occur with quote unquote upper class black names. So I mentioned all of that. But then, I mean, I note some of the obvious caveats with that research. I mean. Most of the studies that look at this tend to focus on those areas of the job market, for example, intentionally or not, where you would still probably find bias, entry level, non-affirmative action, private sector jobs, 95 plus percent of the time from the work I've looked at with white employers. So, I I mean, I know what what would happen if you did a similar audit praxis when it came to applying to top grad schools or B schools. What about government jobs, police, fire, postal service, affirmative action positions? Um, last note before I move on, but what about minority businesses? 
Um, about 36% of businesses, it turns out, we're doing pretty well. About 36% of businesses are either minority owned or entirely female headed, uh, black, Asian, and so on. And that is with uh, Jewish Americans and Middle Easterners classified as white, I will note. That takes it up closer to 50% if you, you shift those groups into the other category. So I, I say all this, and then I just point out that we've obviously committed a great deal of you know, blood and treasure in the USA to fighting sort of the, the ancient regime racism that we used to see. So, I mean, 1954, de jure segregation was ended. 1964, Civil Rights Act made most discrimination against the law. That's fairly rare in the world. Since 1967, we've had pro-minority affirmative action, giving that kind of collegiate edge that I just mentioned. And uh, then I note some of the realities that occur as a result of that. Uh, if you look at the 10 highest earning income groups in the United States, uh, either seven or eight of them, depending on how you classify South Africans, which is a mixed population, are people of color. Uh, number one is Indian Americans, you know, Taiwanese Americans, the most educated groups, Nigerian Americans. Even if you take black Americans, what, what are sometimes called ADOs, as a special case, even if you say, well, that's different from being, you know, a lord from Thailand or Latin America, there, there's that process of slavery. We find that the black-white income gap closes to well under 5%. If you adjust for just a few basic things, which you assume any social scientist would, I mean, age. Uh, I note in the piece the most common age for a black person is 27. For a white person, it's 58. Um, That's the mode rather than the medium. I mean, still, it's a huge gap. I mean, you would would hope that you accumulate some wealth in 31 years of life. Um, But age, region, black people are more likely to live in the South. I believe 15% of whites, 50% of blacks. Salaries are very low for everyone in much of the South. Test scores. Some ground has been made up, but there's frankly still a 130, 150-point gap between blacks and whites overall in the SAT. If you adjust for this stuff, I mean, an initial 17-point gap, which isn't huge, closes to about 1% or 2%. So I talk about all this, and then I give some actual suggestions. I don't note this at length in the piece, but if you really want to fight racism, for that better, anti-Semitism, which is fairly prevalent, sexism, I mean, you could do very simple things, like have the Human Resource Office remove the names on the front piece of resumes and replace them with numbers. This is done all the time in the Japanese and Korean business. Um that would resolve, it would seem, almost all of the remaining problems that I discussed. So I, I talk about the actual picture, good and bad, and then propose solutions, which seems to be an unpopular thing to do these days. And I, I, I think that there's a practical reason for that. I don't think that, say, not not going to drop a whole bunch of names here, but you know, Sean King or Ibram Kendi, I don't, I don't think there'd necessarily be a game looking at those people as businessmen if they were to say that, well, the gap is 3%, why don't we... Uh, encourage people to apply using their initials. There's not really much of a place for that in the modern race discourse. And I, I try to illustrate why that might be. So that that is the article. So um, you, you make this point about how uh, seven uh, out of the eight wealthiest groups in the United States are populations of color. And that term, I think, is very interesting because, uh, you know, generally speaking, um, the 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 notion of the person of color is a relatively recent vintage and i think has something to do with the effort to figure out how to talk about these issues i want to say to be exclusionary of of jewish americans but because jewish americans make up two percent of the population and are a declining percentage of the population 
four percent in nineteen fifty, two percent or a little less now, and will probably be going down as the population increases, and yet have this wildly and 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 are of course only Caucasian in the most uh, the broadest sense in terms of skin color. Um, and so this idea was that there would be this a way of of expanding out the understanding of minorities while using the word color to to attach Hispanics who were often as white as Jews or you know Asians uh, who are of course skin color is not the fundamental physical difference between Asians and uh, and 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 Caucasians. Um, and that we have this uh, weird thing where the, the 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 decision to do this in order to expand out the understanding of what is a minority in the United States plays against this later version of the narrative, according to which it's you know uh, there is a sy- systemic discrimination against people of color in the United States, which is a very hard case to make when you say, well, okay, why then are Nigerians? wildly successful in the United States? Why are West Indians wildly successful in the United States? And I think mostly and most strikingly, why are Indian Americans from the, from the, you know, uh, the, the subcontinent, why are they, I think the number one, I think you say they are, they are in terms of earning, they are the number, they are the number one minority group in, in the United States in terms of earnings. Um, this population that is, it's not large, it's a couple million people. Um, uh, and by the way, not Republican, like very, very, very heavily Democratic. So do you think that this, uh, so you have this kind of telling fact, which is, okay, under the terms, according to which an effort was made to broaden out the Rainbow Coalition to feature everybody who would not be considered white, that that fact has to some degree weakened the uh, what would you call it? Empirical argument about how whites systemically, you know, have balanced America in their favor against people who are not white. Yeah, I, I think this gets into some interesting issues that actually my colleagues down the hall in history might know more about than I do. But I mean, from the political science perspective, the America, when we thought of minorities in the United States until relatively recently, we thought essentially in terms of black Americans. Jews would have been considered more a white group that was experiencing prejudice. There were some Native Americans, but obviously everyone else had been victorious in that conflict. So this is perhaps one or two percent of the population. And that is not the case today. And that's not the case for, to some extent, strategic reasons. Uh, Civil rights leaders and people from Bayard Rustin to Orlando Patterson have talked about this, made the conscious decision to sort of expand the quote unquote minority coalition, the coalition of the fringes after the success of the first round of the civil rights movement, because they thought that would increase, as you guys know, their, their power and impact. So you started seeing people in the late 60s, early 70s start using phrases like minorities, non-whites, and that evolved into all the stuff we say today, you know, people of color and marginalized populations and so on. But the reality is that all these groups have very different experiences. Um, In Japanese and Nigerian and East Indian immigrants to the USA, I'm sure they face some residual racism as I might playing basketball or on a golf course or something, but this is not 
something that destroys lives and careers. I mean, these are essentially foreign business people that are coming here to be successful citizens of a new country. It's very difficult to think what someone who's Nigerian or Japanese American at the average would have experienced that a quote unquote Caucasian Jewish Israeli, say, or Middle Eastern Lebanese immigrant would not have. Um, So the, the picture becomes very complicated. Today, there is not an extraordinary amount of measurable bias in the United States. There there simply isn't. When you look at some of those figures uh, along the lines of wouldn't vote for qualified black president, I mean, I gave the figure of 8%. The figure for a woman was 9%. Uh, For a Jewish American, actually, you guys might be curious to know, is again, 8, 9%. For a gay person, it was 24%. So that's the level of bias. Mormons, Mormons didn't do too well. Oh, yeah, Mormons. Mormons were 38% or something like that. People describe them as the cultists. Yeah, the, the uh, qualitative portion of these polls can be pretty savage. Uh, Arabs also had a 38% rejection rate. But um, I, I think today we all almost all deal with that unless you happen to be a, you know, six foot four, blonde haired, you know, son of an English laird. That's not what people are discussing when they talk about the impact of racism. But that historical past impact of racism really only can be cited by a few groups, Uh, African-Americans, again, perhaps members of Indian tribes. What you've seen is a strategic attempt to broaden that minority coalition to include everyone who's not white. And that one leads to these silly disputes like, are Lebanese people white? With that sometimes going back and forth almost case by case, as with this Syrian shooter. So that's point one. But point two, it leads to the odd claim that the the son of a Thai duke is oppressed in the USA. And I think a lot of people at some level know that's not true. I I, I, I was going to ask, to that point, there seems to be an effort now to retrench on that Mm -hmm. among, you know, the Ibram Kendi's and, uh, you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones types in the media, because the evidence is so overwhelming that that claim is no longer really uh, legitimate. And I've been curious to see, as soon as anyone wants to talk about what was a big discussion about race in the 60s and 70s in particular, about cultural cultural issues that are different among groups and how that might affect, you know, kind of real world uh, achievement. As soon as that conversation comes up now, I tend to see one of two things, uh, a retreat into the abstractions of systemic racism, right? It's systemic, it's historical, and also a very personal, emotionally driven appeal to the intergenerational trauma of slavery that is still carried in the black body, right? So you have this kind of extremes on either end, both of which I think in some sense are either a, a a concerted effort to avoid having some of the more difficult conversations. So the, the thing that struck me about your excellent article, one of the one of the portions of it that everyone should read, is discussing across race, there are a couple things you can do to be successful in this country. You can complete your education in high school. You can wait to get, you can get a job and keep it. You can stay out of prison and you can wait to have children until you're married. And the effects of that, regardless of skin color, are vast. Those things... Mm-hmm can transform how you're going to achieve anything in this country and has nothing to do with race. Yeah. I mean, I, I, th- I think uh, that's, that's almost more of an excellent summary than a question, but yeah, one, one sentence. It looks like, <laughs> Sorry. It was, like such, it was a great piece. Everyone oh, should read. It's on a website. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, in terms of one comment, because it looked like John had something to say, uh, I think that I was a businessman before becoming an academic. And I think that a lot of things can be said very quickly and pragmatically. Um, There are groups who, because of defeats in genuine past conflict, have, one, a higher likelihood of poverty as a starting point, 
and two, some cultural issues that go along with poverty that lasts more than two generations. That's it. I mean, that that's the issue for African-Americans on the average, again, many highly successful African-Americans. Um, and that's also the issue, by the way, for Appalachian whites where I live. I mean, this is something like 15% of the country. This is recognized as an independent ethnic group. If you go to the Wikipedia and Britannica lists of groups by income, they have Appalachian Americans. And I, I don't mean to be at all critical or mocking, but that's a group that performs below, for example, Mexican Americans in terms of average income. I believe it's $37,000 or some such. So that group, again, the people that were shipped on orphan trains into the hills, you have past abuse, past conflict, and you have more than two generations of poverty and you have those effects. I haven't studied this at length, but I would suspect Native Americans would be in that same boat. So you've got blacks, Appalachians, natives. But for many of these other groups, they're having the white upper class immigrant experience in all likelihood, plus, you know, one percent effects of racism and so on. I like the diversity of our country, but it it's silly not to recognize this and pretend that essentially to label something like fatherlessness in black or Appalachian communities systemic racism. That's taking things to what a philosopher might call the plane of the meaningless, where you can never fix the actual problem, which you can do by offering jobs, promoting marriage, so on and on. Hey, Will, I have a question. I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot if you don't have the data, but I'm, I'm curious in, in hearing you talk about the general, generational aspect of things. Um, what happens, um, say, in uh, cases of um, like uh, Nigerians or other uh, African immigrant immigrant groups uh, in the next generation? Um, how, how, how do how do those numbers uh, stack up against uh, the, the the general population in the U.S.? I mean, because I, I, I my sort of instinct would be to think that that would even be a, a more telling um, uh, uh, representation of of where we're at. Because uh, then you have sort of, you know, a, a, a generation that is raised entirely here without the, um, you know, sort of the, the, the schism of the old, old country and the new. Yeah, the uh, I was tempted to do a macho pose like I always have the data. In. But um, <laughs> basically, the short answer is that members of high performing, uh, quote unquote, business immigrant groups do very well for three to four generations. Now, there, there's a lot here that's fascinating that I'll shorten up, actually, but. So the first line, for two to four generations, generally at least three, the descendants of Asian, Nigerian, so on immigrants do quite well. Um, that That's the short answer. Second generation Nigerian or uh, East Asian immigrants do roughly as well as their parents. Um, I mean, kind of interesting point one, by the third or fourth generation, that vanishes. Assimilation into American culture to a certain extent, and this is this is also true for Jews in secularized families, by the way. Um, this is also true for members of the upper class that leave that social rank for some position. People that leave intensive study cultures and assimilate to American mainstream culture within three generations get dumb is a rude way of putting it, but study much less, uh, become much more sexually active early on in high school, become right. more concerned with stuff like varsity sports. I mean, so our culture is not a stupid culture, but it is very much a midwit go out there and compete, Hoss, kind of culture. And if you come from one of the elite high-performing cultures in the world, whether that's traditional Ashkenazi culture, that's East Asian study culture, Nigerian Igbo culture, uh, you're going you're gonna to step down a level if you transition fully, which is something for parents to keep in mind in terms of what traditions to keep alive, that sort of thing. Um, also, interestingly enough, this almost totally destroys the large genetic IQ differences argument in the race debate. 
this may be my next actual serious journal article. It, it makes no sense that you'd see no quote unquote regression to the mean for two generations. That's 50 years. And then you automatically would when people start hanging out more with their schoolmates and playing ball and so on. That That's not how that works. So I, I think that there's a huge argument for what used to be called culturalism. Um, that's Amy Wax and all that. That's really almost unchallenged. So this is another interesting piece. I mean, there's a thickness in there's a there's a thickness to uh, a successful life, let's say, or a life in which you can uh, make the most of your future. That that uh, Christine laid out that you lay out very systematically in the piece. A lot of this is like the the marshmallow test. You know, can you defer gratification? Uh, until you uh, have built yourself a solid foundation from which you can uh, you, that you can use as a as a as a platform and a springboard at the same time, and a lot of it is denial, right? Denial of 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 uh, or like an understanding of the p- potential consequences of of early sexual behavior, uh, the 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 virtue of the stability that is provided by a, uh, by by years of education. And marriage, and um, those th- the interesting thing about the cultural messages that have arisen in the wake of the last fifty years since uh, the or almost sixty years since the successful uh, um, the civil rights legislation and all of that is how difficult it is or how difficult it is proved to simply lay these ideas out to particularly black communities and say, look, all you need to do is just hold on, wait, stay in school, get a job and wait till marriage to have children. And your whole life can be transformed. And for reasons that are very complicated and interesting, it seems to me, this is viewed by an enormous number of people as a either condescending uh, attitude or an, a, a deeply uh, unfair attitude or something where you're blaming the victim. You're blaming the victim for living in a community in which there are, there are high levels of, um, of illegitimacy, uh, for example, and you are stigmatizing Ill- uh, illegitimacy, which is unfair to those who were born under conditions that they uh, that are of no fault of their own and all of that. And that um, all of that, of course, takes it out of the realm of the racial and goes entirely into the realm of the cultural. And those messages, of course, are not just messages that we get from about, you know, condescending middle-class people looking down on minority populations. This is stuff that flows down from the, from the high summits of culture, from, you know, from celebrity culture in which there is absolutely no hewing to these cultural norms or even like what used to be the case for Hollywood or popular culture, which is at least lip service, obeisance, hypocritical, the hypocritical acceptance that this is how you're supposed to live and pretending that you live that way, even if you, if you don't. And, um, and, so I'm wondering whether you, when you say the good news, you know, they won't tell you about race in America, which is the what we titled the piece. This is also good news that isn't being told to the very people who need to hear it the most, because it's a pretty simple message. It's hard. 
it's a hard, you know, it's like, it's hard to tell people they need to be self-disciplined in order to take full benefit of the advantages of society and that it's not just going to flow to them, particularly if they're told that it flows to other people without any need for them to show similar restraint. But you're saying that's not true. Go several generations down and the assimilation of those who have proved this point shows the degradation of these values over time and that not immiseration, but the kind of, um, I don't know, fall from grace or fall down like half a step down the class, you know, d- down the class rungs, your parents climb up and climb up and climb up. And then, yeah. And then you play sports instead of like, you know, studying five hours a day. And then maybe you don't do as well as you might have otherwise. And your, your focus is, is, uh, is, is in the wrong direction. Yeah, coming from a big city, uh, Chicago, and having had a diverse group of high school friends, I mean, I will say this is something that causes tension in East Asian, uh, some traditional Jewish, West African, so on families. I mean, there's going to be some anger if your family were, you know, hereditary nobles in Nigeria and worked to come here and you decided you want to become, say, a hip hop artist. Um, I've actually talked about this with friends from high school and with casual buddies online, like the rapper Zuby, although that's, that's him talking on Twitter and me a couple of responses. But I mean, that this, this is something that occurs. Uh, there's a lot to what you just said in terms of thickness. I mean, first of all, I have some sympathy to hypocrisy. Because I find that the other option is very often evil. Um, if my daughter in 10 years were to ask me, uh, how are you in high school when it came to, you know, trying to sleep around or fist fighting or something? I would say I was perfect, you know, and then you would move forward. I mean, there, there's not there's not another option in that conversation. So uh, I definitely think that there's there's a place for civilization, uh, sometimes defended by imperfections with the truth. Um, to put it politely, but the real idea in terms of why there's such resistance to an obviously accurate cultural narrative, when you can point to groups like Nigerians, uh, some white immigrants, including Jewish Americans and East Asians that are of the three largest traditional human populations that all do roughly equally well, it becomes obvious that there's something measurable other than race or fate or religion, let's say, that is that is responsible for this. Why is there so much resistance to that narrative? I think because we have opted as the result of political fighting in the mid-1970s and straight political science to go with racism as the primary explanatory narrative for group struggles. That made a little bit of sense from a moral, if not a logical perspective, when the conflict was between black and white Americans. But we are now attempting to pursue this narrative just to hold it forward in a very diverse country that has again decided to bring in a cycle of reasonably high-performing immigrants. So we're now forced to try to explain differences between the Mexican guy and the Japanese guy on the basis of this narrative of prejudice. And that that makes no sense. And when you actually start unpacking the data... Um, Again, the the groups most likely to suffer hate crimes in the USA are Asian Americans, Jewish Americans, and Arabs. Those are three of the highest performing groups in the country. There's almost no correlation between experiencing this sort of mild one in 20 people won't rent to me bigotry, which I think to some extent we all do, women and the like, and crime rate, for example. So this narrative is weakening, and very often when powerful people find that they're losing an argument, they respond with censorship. So I I think that's what you're now seeing with some of the frantic sort of social justice stuff going on. Um, A final note about this, actually, 
it, when you mentioned a lot of this comes from celebrity culture, I think a lot of the virtue signaling about how we should act comes from celebrity culture. If you notice the actual lives of famous, successful people, they are almost all in happy marriages. They're homeowners. I mean, Jay-Z and Beyonce are literally married. Um, they have a beloved daughter, Blue Ivy, who's listed as a producer on their album so she can get these royalties, a generational billion-dollar wealth. So, I mean, they can make all the songs like Big Pimpin' and Single Ladies that they want, but they live in a mansion together. I mean, it's, so it's to some extent, people aren't supposed to believe this crap. I mean, you know, artists going back to Frank Sinatra and sort of presented themselves as out there playboys while living perfectly normal lives. But uh, unfortunately, the people most likely to be harmed by this are also the people most likely to believe it. Kind of last one sentence. But when I started teaching and occasionally coaching things like park districts and so on in inner city areas, it amazed me the number of kids that would say things from rap songs as if they were real. Like a kid once to me, we we're playing one on one basketball against each other, and he told me, you ain't D-Boy, a successful drug dealer, until you got you a gun and a chain. And I listened to hip-hop, and it was like, that's a little boozy lyric. Like, you, you can't actually base your life on this, my man. Like, let's... I ended up taking this guy to, like, Walmart and getting him a job even down the road. But it's... If you don't have that father figure or even that stable mother figure, someone's got to be giving that advice. I mean, look, we're 100... We're 175 years away from Flaubert writing Madame Bovary, which is... Uh, which is the... Was the first portrait... Uh, I think in, 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 in cultural history about somebody whose life was ruined because she found fictional representations of reality more alluring than living an actual life, right? And so we now live drenched in this entertainment culture, you know, in a way that no one in, in world history has ever lived drenched in entertainment culture and particularly hip hop culture, which has very peculiar and bizarre a very peculiar and bizarre value structure that provides very little in the way of uplift or, you know, uh, let's say, uh, and, and we're now living with the consequences uh, of that because it is all part of the message that the purpose of life is fun, right? It's in some fashion, however you want to, however you want to calculate fun, sex, you know, having a gun, <laughs> hanging out with your friends, you know, being an outlaw, all of that is all fun culture. And we're, we're talking about cultural messages that, that provide you with rich richness and thickness rather than, you know, just sort of like momentary pleasure. Christine, I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, no, that's fine. I actually, there's something that, that, that Will said that really struck me as helping me understand things uh, like the 1619 Project. And it's this, you said, you know, when, when these messages, when the reality doesn't comport with the messaging, there's a lot of censorship that comes in. I think what we're also seeing is that there's an attempt to rewrite history to boost the victim narrative for the very people who don't want to listen to the cultural message. Because if you're a victim, you can choose all the things that, John, I think you're absolutely right, are, are people are reveling in because you've been so victimized, what other option do you have? And that, and you close your piece with actually a pretty uh, straightforward uh, assessment of how dangerous this message is. It's not just all fun and games. It's not just bad rap lyrics. It's actually, we're, we're raising generations of kids, and not just black kids, white kids, you know, Asian kids, to believe a narrative that isn't true, and that that can have harmful long-term consequences for their ability to try to embrace these cultural values that we're discussing. Okay, so let me, let me just pull back for a second and talk to you again, as I've been talking to you all week, but this fantastic desk chair, they sent me the X chair. 
which uh, massages you, warms you, uh, gives you lumbar support, uh, dynamic variable lumbar support right to your lower back, and with its new XHMT technology, provides heat and massage therapy while you're sitting at your desk. It goes right to your core. It helps increase blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy, all perks that make working from home or in the chair in your office a joy. It even has four different massage modes and fast warming heat technology for therapy when you're sore. That's the X chair. Instead of your old uncomfortable office chair, you might look forward to spending hours sitting in the ultimate therapeutic massager. You won't believe the X chair difference until you feel the X chair difference for yourself. Trust me. This is the luxury supercar of office chairs. X chair is on sale now for a hundred dollars off. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWHEELS for free X-Wheel blade casters. That's xchaircommentary.com. Calm. Now, Christine, yesterday, I, I want to move on at some point soon to the Biden uh, infrastructure uh, proposals that were uh, that were released yesterday. But Christine, you wrote a, a blog post yesterday uh, uh, about the difficult discussions that we need to be having that we're not having about some of these issues, in particular, hate crimes, violent hate crimes against Asian Americans. And the, you know, tragic, horrible fact that um, uh, it is vastly more likely that the that the people who are committing these hate, these violent hate crimes that we keep seeing on videos in the streets are themselves African-American. We now have these two cases, one against an Asian-American in New York City and one against um, a Hasidic Jew and his family in New York City or a Haredi Jew in New York City last night, uh, both parolees, one on parole after a tw- 18 year uh serving 18 years for murdering his mother uh and another on parole after uh serving for attempted murder both out on the streets after this uh after this very high liberalization of parole rules and release rules in New York state um and and we now have you know a, a woman fighting for her life and this family of three getting slashed by a knife by people who otherwise might have justly remained in prison and we now see the consequences of some of these uh, uh liberalizations so um I, why don't you talk a little bit about what you what you said in the blog post Sure. I just, it, it was, it, it started as an exploration of why uh, all the discussions of anti-Asian uh, crime uh, talked about white supremacy. And a lot of other writers have written really well about this. And, and our friend Barry Weiss had a good post about it the other day too. The narrative that's being constructed by the media has a purpose. And part of that purpose is to hide the facts on the ground, which everybody who, who lives it knows it. Um, so it was looking at that. But as I started looking at some of the details, I realized this is a, it, that horrible uh, a video that went viral kind of captured a lot about our current moment with regard to crime and how we talk about race that's really worrisome because some of the other things that that, that video showed are you know the, the inability of of civic leaders particularly in in deep blue states and cities to actually confront the problem that's right in front of them so you have bill de blasio who happily put this guy this guy comes out of parole and look you serve your, he, you serve your time a parole board at 
obviously um, incorrectly released him thinking he was is not a danger to the public. But, you know, he served his time. He comes out. I don't have any problem with, with the fact that someone who serves his time should be given another chance to reintegrate into society. But he was homeless and he was put up at a midtown hotel on the taxpayer dime. And this has been a problem in New York where a lot of, as, as you all know, who live in New York, where people have been worried about some of the second order effects of housing the criminally uh, uh, people who've, who've been incarcerated or people who have all kinds of you know, psychological, untreated psychological issues in the middle of the city. So he's staying at this hotel for free, walks down the street and just totally unprovoked, beats up this woman. And the people who watched it and witnessed it didn't do a thing. They shut the door. They didn't help her. And so I actually bring up the the... I know from a social science perspective, the controversial Kitty Genovese bystander effect case. But the point is that have we actually become either so fearful or so um, immune to the impact of this kind of street crime that nobody acts? So I, it really concerned me for that reason. But I, I would I'd like to hear from Will what he thinks about the narrative, the race narrative that's that's emerged in the last few weeks about Asian American hate crime, because I find that fascinating. It literally, you could watch it being created in real time if you if you kind of follow certain reporters. Yeah, I, I think that in general, and this ties back into one of the initial themes of the article. I think that there is an entirely false narrative about American race relations that, on kind of that quantitative sort of center right sector of society, everyone knows is false but that is widely perceived as being true. And we'll get into some of that data that was in the article very briefly about how many black people or people in general, the average centrist or liberal American thinks are killed by cops and typically are just remarkable. But I, I think there's an entirely false narrative that's been generated out there that's almost completely distinct from the reality of real but very declining racism. And we, we see this over and over. I mean, in a typical year, if you go to the Washington Post, kind of gold standard on this, by no means, you know, a conservative outlier, um, 70 to 80 percent of those killed by law enforcement officers in a typical year are Caucasians. They're white or Hispanic. This isn't disputed by anybody. When I wrote my book, Taboo, I looked at what percentage of mass media coverage of police shootings focused on that, let's say, 76 percent of cases. Um, and I, I looked at this by searching things like well-known police shooting and going through the first 10 to 100 pages of you know Google, Google Scholar, did something similar on JSTOR. The short version is that 10 to 20 percent of all mass media coverage focuses on more than 70 percent of the cases. The small, almost tiny percentage of cases with a black victim receive almost all of the coverage, uh, as many, much as 90 percent in some news cycles. You see the same thing with interracial crime. I don't want to drone on on this, but interracial crime, one, is very rare uh, in a serious violent interracial crime. I mean, in a typical year, there are 12 to 20 million crimes. Of those, about 600,000 are going to be violent crimes involving a white person and a black person. So let's say 5% of crime at the outside. But of those interracial crimes that occur, black and white, about 80% are black on white. This isn't a secret in most urban areas. However, again, news coverage is diametrically directly opposed. I mean, you see that being focused again to the extent I've been able to measure it, 80 to 90 percent on the atypical Dylan Roofs, the white on black cases. And I think what we're seeing here is just the extension of this into this again gets back into this interesting debate we had about who's white. I mean, Asians seem to be white for purposes of perhaps offending, but not victimization. Uh, so now you, you're in this weird position where you see Black Lives Matter sending along the other hashtag, what is it, stop AAPI hate. So there's a whole intersecting web of nonsense here around some of these issues. But the the presentation of this is, well, again, this fits the narrative 
90% of our coverage of interracial crime focuses on white supremacy. So the obvious narrative of crime is white supremacy. The, the problem, as Christine more briefly than I did pointed out, is that that's not actually how crime looks. Uh, this is actually my next article coming up for you guys. And I mean, I said I'd put together a data set, did. Right now, of the 100, 150 cases featured since late 2019 in mass media, uh, it looks like we've got about 65% African-American perpetrators. The interesting thing about this is that that's not even atypical for urban crime. You also have a good number of white perps, Hispanic perps, but you certainly don't find a pattern of white supremacy. You find white, Hispanic, and especially black thugs, mostly gang-affiliated, beating up these old Asian people. That That's the pattern. There's nothing, it has nothing to do with politics on either side. So again, you're seeing an incredible spin to make this uh, to make this seem to be what it is in the mainstream press. And you're seeing this over and over again, by the way, with hoodies and hijabs after Trayvon Martin was shot and so on. And none of this has anything to do with crime. Um, I, I know we want to move on, but I just want to point out that I think one of the most uh, poisonous uh, attempts to spin uh, this um, is uh, you, you see in these articles that argue that, well, um, even if we see uh, black Americans uh, per- perpetrating some of these anti-Asian crimes, um, it is a result of their having absorbed white supremacy, um, which which is at least a, a double um, offense um, in that it it's you know per- perpetuates this lie about white supremacy and and paints uh, uh, African Americans as this sort of you know agency free, you know, sponges who are who are there to do nothing but reflect the worst of of, of white culture. I mean, uh, will you mention sort of, you know, Appalachian whites as a as a as an almost distinct ethnic group within the whatever minor majority of plurality of of whites and this is part of the part of the horror joke of the white supremacy narrative which if you wanted to pull it back and talk about whether or not the uh, the the upper echelons of American society, the ultimate elites of American society, uh, are governed by a set of uh, uh, assumptions that that may, in some sense, unjustly favor the children and grandchildren and great grandchildren of the prominent and well-to-do of previous centuries. That's fine. But when we're talking about crime in the United States, you were often talking about very poor black people, very poor white people, very poor Hispanic people committing the overwhelming majority of crimes in the United States for all kinds of weird reasons, right? I mean, some of them are economic or financial, robberies and things like that, or which are Financial crimes only in the sense that they're about taking something from somebody else because you don't have it and you want it or you want their money or something like that. Or because these are the people are living, getting to the cultural points, these lives sort of ho- lives of hopelessness with no uh, sense or like in which consequences, you know, you're not paralyzed by the, by the fear of consequences for your actions. You, you know, you, you, you act on your impulses and you, you can't contain yourself and all that. And that it's bizarre that we should be in a circumstance in which these Appalachian whites you're talking about, the people that we were talking about just four or five years ago, being awash in this uh, unprecedented American misery with fentanyl overdoses and and this rash of you know suicides and uh, and worklessness and all of that, 
uh, that they are now basically given to understand, or we are now given to understand that because of the color of their skin, they somehow have a cultural benefit or a cultural elevation higher than those of uh, other people whose lives are exactly the same, structured exactly the same, fatherlessness, you know, uh, single-parent households, chaos, uh, government benefits providing the lion's share of the, you know, uh, of, of income and, and, and stuff like that, right? I mean, it's sort of, so we're talking about it, it, crime as an issue in the United States is an issue of uh, poor people mostly menacing poor people and, 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 and immiserating and ruining the lives of other people who are in their close proximity who have no ability to, you know, who can't, who can't fight back. Yeah. Now, again, there, there's a lot there. First, to some extent, I do think that depends on what you mean by crime. Um, I jokingly said in one of my books that the four highest crime environments I've ever been in were like the high school rave party and club scene, like the college group <laughs> scene, you know, the Internet in the early OOs, you know, trading floors on Michigan Avenue. And I mean, that's only partly a joke. Throwing an illegal party full of 10,000 people is a fairly serious felony. I mean, so I think to some extent there's a lot of upper middle class, well-adjusted crime that's just never punished. You don't want to say because people are smart enough or rich enough not to get caught. But I mean, I recall there was an incident in Chicago a couple of years ago where a very well-known popular female doctor died in what was billed as a cocaine apartment. And there was a great deal of mockery of this in the city's young upper middle class. Like, you mean a crack house? And I'm, I'm not trying to, I'm unfortunately, it's a terrible situation. Yeah. How someone died. But th- this cocaine apartment, not mocking her, so on, but this cocaine apartment had been operating for something like 12 years. Um, there were people in the scene that were aware of where it was. I mean, so I, I do think that we, we tend to punish more young, angry men, really almost race aside, who are smoking weed outdoors. That's why there are more arrests for this crime in cities. But in terms of the kind of crime, I'm really trying not to be glib about this, the kind of crime people care about, the mugging of an old lady. Yeah, that tends to be very centered among what I just said, young, angry, poor men, uh, black overrepresented, but race almost aside, prison for violent crimes is something like 50% white, 30% black, 20% Hispanic. And yes, a, a really weird element of this, I think, you can condense it into one sentence. We're trying to use race as a total proxy for a whole bunch of things, including class. And it just doesn't work. Um, there are a couple standardized scales of privilege. I mean, there's a good one that was designed by, I think, Ivy grad students. Don't don't hold me to that. But it's designed by someone fairly serious. It led the BuzzFeed website for a couple of weeks. You can just Google this, test your privilege. And if you actually administer this to people... Um, I mean, I've done this in classes where you can see how people react to surveys and so on. And the 70, 80 percent predictor of how people score is family income. I mean, the questions certainly include things that may relate to race. Have you been racially abused? Have you heard racial language? Although I would assume that as a white guy in a New York City basketball team, you hear racial language all the time. So, again, that's you can unpack that in several directions. But many of the questions are just things like, have you ever gone to bed hungry? Um, have you ever been able to have an unpaid internship? Have you ever been beaten in a fight by more than one person? And these are these are direct class questions. And we find that race has about a 1% or 2% impact on the results, at least so far. No massive post-IRB study on this as of yet. But class has a 40, 50-point impact. And I'm, I'm positive that if that were looked at, 
you know, using log Lynn regression, 10,000 respondents, you'd find the same thing. So we're, we're trying to make race stand in for class in these situations. The problem with this, as you mentioned, is that it leads to almost the demonization of poor whites. Because you've got a group that's at least as deprived as urban African-Americans in many ways to begin with. A bit less racism, but also a bit less income and you're further from the jobs. And now you're being told you are privileged. You are somehow what's wrong with the country. This is the alt-right, by the way. I mean, like, the alt-right is smart, or whatever it's called now, is smart working-class white kids in cities of twenty to 50,000 who have a bunch of black and white buddies from the projects who are going to community college. It's a few city kids as well. But if you look at the demographics on, say, 8 Coon, that is very, very heavily smart, working-class white males asking, why does everyone seem to be so mad at me? And then reacting with legitimate bitterness and anger and stupid sophomoric antics and jokes. But that is the root of the issue. Okay, so, you know, it's interesting because we, the one difference, obviously, between a poor white populations and poor black populations and historically is that black people came to America, uh, uh, were, you know, uh, under, un, in chains and white people did not and have this legacy of slavery, which <clears throat> white people do not have, even though that is now 160 years old. But if you want to read about uh, culture, the formation of, of, of these kind of, um, violent shame cultures that aren't just, you know, I- inner city, you know, horror show cultures. You can read there's David Hackett Fisher's Albion Seed, which is about the sort of Scotch Irish Appalachia, the, the growth of, of a kind of distinct American culture, uh, casually violent, very territorial. Um, this kind of adoption of clan behavior into a, into a, a into a country in which people did not have a root connection to the land, so it had an entirely different form. Or born fighting, which is James Webb's book on much much the same subject. For some of these very interesting cultural uh, similarities that are being you know, sort of washed away by this des- desire for this theory of everything, which is the white supremacist theory. Okay, so we're now at minute 50. I said we were going to talk about the uh, about the Biden infrastructure plan, but maybe we shouldn't because... I mean, everything is infrastructure now, so it's fine. That's right. This is infrastructure. That's right. This is race yes, infrastructure. Yes, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. We talked about But it. I think maybe we'll, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll save this until, we'll save this until tomorrow when uh, uh, Noah, Noah is back. Not that I don't believe that uh, Will couldn't illuminate us uh, very deeply on, on, on some of these matters. Um, so uh, thanks everybody for listening. Remember, go to merch.commentarymagazine.com for your new keep the candle burning mug and everything else that's there 20 bucks gets you a mug and you'll have that mug forever you know you want it go get it please go to commentarymagazine.com and read uh, wilfred riley's piece the good news they won't tell you about race in america subscribe to commentary when you do also uh christine rosen's blog post yesterday the name of which i can't summon up uh uh I'm looking it up as we speak. The hard truths of the latest anti-Asian attack sitting atop our daily commentary uh, vertical uh, on the Commentary Magazine website. So, uh, and and watch for Will Riley's piece on uh, Asian hate crimes and uh, what's what, what's going on there in our next issue, which we close 
next week. I think at the end of next week, maybe maybe a little later than that. Anyway, so thanks so much for being here, Will. And for Christine and Abe and the Absent No Rothman, I'm John Pothorts. Keep the candle burning.